Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So for today's episode of the podcast, we've got Gavin White, who is the CEO and co-founder of a really interesting company that I found recently called About Energy. Uh, Gavin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan, for having me. It's a real honor to be part of the podcast. Fantastic. So if you could just um, start off by introducing yourself to everyone tell us about your background and you know what got you into what you're doing now yeah definitely lucky this is a well-rehearsed script giving it to a lot of venture capitalists at the moment so that'll <laughs> go down well um but yeah so i'm gavin one of the co-founders and the ceo of about energy my background was mechanical engineering which i studied at queen's university belfast um yeah through through university i got the opportunity to do placements at Aston Martin. Um, I was sponsored onto the engineering leadership program by them. So throughout university, I ended up doing, I think it was 18 months in total of placements. Uh, all at Aston Martin? Yeah, all at Aston Martin. I moved around department a few times and the last three months were actually in the special projects and motorsport department. So that was working on the Valkyrie hypercar, which was like a collaboration between Aston Martin and Red Bull Racing. Uh, which was really cool. I'd say worked on it, but I think it's fair to say that I probably just observed what they were doing. <laughs> you watched the magic happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that was very much like my dream job. And um, kind of when I, whenever I was doing it, I thought I should be loving this, really loving it. Um, but for some reason, it wasn't really fulfilling me. And I realized it was kind of like the, the social cause wasn't really there in building these 2.5 million pound race cars for the super wealthy. So yeah, I had a bit of an existential crisis after university, went to Australia for a year, um, worked on a construction site in Brisbane, uh, laboring, just building scaffolding, um, realized there that I didn't love laboring on a construction <laughs> site either. <laughs> Quite extreme. To no surprise, anybody that's met me would realize that I do not have the build for construction, especially laboring. Um, but realized that I loved studying um, and I also always want to start my own business. So I remember reading as cringy as it is to say Elon Musk's book and in it he talks about, there's literally like two lines on it. He talks about how doing a PhD is a great way to start a company because you get three or four years to really focus on the technology and then that technology can form part of a company and a very like defensible IP. Um, so Elon Musk actually only did a PhD I think for two days before he dropped out. Moved to, moved to California with his brother. Um, I didn't have the luxury of moving to California. So, um, but his logic was very like solid. Um, and that kind of led me to start exploring PhD opportunities. So three many fortunate events I ended up here at Imperial. Um, and yeah, that was the start of my PhD, which was on uh, developing fast thermal models for lithium ion battery packs, uh, which was sponsored by Rolls-Royce. Very early on into that PhD, I realized that the limitations weren't with the models, or it wasn't with the speed of the models. It was actually to do with the inputs. 
Um, so I stumbled across an invention for how to measure thermal conductivity more accurately. And that was literally just over three years ago and spent a long time um, pursuing commercialization of that technology at Imperial. Um, I was very fortunate, you know, and probably a lot of the audience know Professor Greg Offer at Imperial. He was my supervisor. Previous uh, guest on the podcast. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they can link back to that one. So yeah, so he was very supportive of all of this. And then he linked, linked me with the Faraday Institution um, and Neil Morris, he was there. So Neil Morris, uh, he was the founding CEO of the Faraday Institution. Um, and at that point he had retired, but had came back as a commercial advisor. And that's when Greg introduced me to him. And that's where I got introduced to my co-founder, Kieran, from the University of Birmingham. So me and Kieran had never met, but we got introduced over this email chain with like the context of you're both working on good battery technology in very complementary areas. Do you want to see if there's um, opportunity to start a commercial entity around the both of them? So that was, I met Kieran a year and a half ago. I guess, yeah, the rest is really history. So, so Kieran, he wasn't at Imperial. He was at Imperial. Where was Kieran at again? So Kieran was at the University of Birmingham. Birmingham. So he's like my... Yeah, he's like my my doppelganger, but at the University of Birmingham. So the same way through our PhDs, uh, worked on very similar um, like test measurements for batteries, but just in very different fields. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a very, very fortunate coming together. And luckily, we were very compatible, like both um, in work and also socially. Um, and yeah, it's been like a very successful and fun time since then, spinning this company out. That's a fantastic um, story, and I mean, not—I don't know. I mean, I—I I wouldn't have normally made that connection, um, you know, doing a PhD and then immediately setting a company up, you know, sort of deep science. And but, but it's—it's it's a very good uh, point that you make um, in terms of doing that, and and obviously, big advantage in terms of the network that you built straight away through the different people that you were exposed to. So. You've kind of um, you ended up immediately reaching beyond Imperial to Birmingham to a much broader group. So, what what is it that um, that you guys are doing about energy? Why did you set the company up? Yeah, so we set the company up um, because, well, I guess myself and Kieran we both stumbled across yeah these measurement te techniques for measuring batteries more accurately than anybody else. Um, and I guess the real problem that industry is facing and society is facing is that a lot of battery development at the moment is done through trial and error. I think, well, definitely I still find it unbelievable that we use batteries and everything from our watches to mobile phones, to uh, like electric cars, grid energy storage, but it's quite unbelievable how little is still understood about the battery and how it works and how to design systems. And a lot of the development of these products is just done through trial and error. So you look at cell manufacturing and a huge amount of cell manufacturing is, is literally just people throwing materials together, mixing it up and then just churning out batteries and testing them. And the reason that is, is because they don't trust the models such as they do in other engineering disciplines. Like I came from mechanical engineering background and in, in our university course, as I'm sure any of your listeners could relate to, you do um, computer aided engineering, such as uh, CFD, computational fluid dynamics as well as strength of materials where you do optimization of say like a metal block in order to um, reduce its weight and improve its strength. And these models are very well established and the results are heavily trusted. Um, the same cannot be said for battery models. 
Um, and that's really the problem we're trying to address is we're trying to take these battery models that exist and, and make them more accurate. And is it, what, what, you know, why do you think that is? Is it because they're cross domain, like electrochemical, thermal, you got some like fluidic stuff going on as well. What, what is it? Is it, is that complexity of, I think is multi-physics is the correct terminology, something like that. Is that, is that it? Or is it just cause it, I mean, it's not, I was going to say, cause it's all new, but it's not really, you know, like you say, battery cells in all sorts of things for years and years and years. So I think it's the complexity of what's really going on. Like even the most in detailed, what we call physics-based electrochemical models. Um, there's like a very famous one, the Doyle for a Newman model. Even that model makes so many assumptions about what's going on inside the battery, how the lithium is deintercalating, how it's been transported across the separator through the electrolyte and then being reintercalated. Even these models make so many assumptions of, of that very, very, very complex chemical diffusion process. Um, so the reality is the models aren't perfect and they're also very, very difficult to, to parameterize, to measure. Like this stuff's going on at kind of like the nanometer resolution. Um, and you can't put a test probe in to, to measure and contextualize what's going on because you would interrupt the process. So it's batteries are kind of like this mythical, this mythical little box where you, you, you put, you put current in and out. And the only thing you get out the other side is a voltage response and you can measure the temperature of how much it heats up and literally everything else you have to work backwards to try and figure out the processes. So. I think one day they will get there, but right now we've identified that they're limited by the inputs that go into the models. Um, the models still have a long way to go themselves, but it's what we're really trying to do is help companies digitalize a lot of their uh, R&D and use computer-aided engineering to reduce cost and time um, to market. Okay, cool. So you basically, through your work um, and, and the things you were doing, you you, you sort of realized these exist, uh, the existing model had a... Uh, models had limitations and you came up with a better way of doing it and now you're helping other people apply that uh better way i mean is it do you just do that or, or do you also do sort of more conventional like battery analysis and things like that or is, are you more sort of focused on that improved um modeling technique yeah so the way the way it kind of works at the moment is we have um yeah, like two types of, of revenue streams and customers. We have one, which is the consultancy, which will meet, we call more of a technical partnership. So it's between us and, and the clients. And, um, we offer them a lot of advice support. We advise them on what's the best models for, you know, the, the challenges they're trying to address. Um, and then in that they can send us, um, sales under NDA and we can test them, keep all that information secret and proprietary. And that's more of a kind of, uh, recurring services consultancy contract. And then the other part, which is the far more scalable part of the business, which is where we're going to have the biggest impact is on our kind of SaaS products. So software as a service. Um, and that's where, um, we buy commercially available cells. So these are batteries that literally anybody could just go and buy on, on, on a website right now from Samsung, LG, Panasonic, Sony, and each of these manufacturers has like eight to 10 different cells. Um, available at any one time, different makes and models, similar to, I guess, different like car models. So some of the batteries are optimized for costs, some are energy, some are power, some are degradation. You can't have all of them. It's impossible. So is what these manufacturers do is they place different models and makes in these kind of different areas. So it's what we do is we buy each of them, each of them batteries, we build models of them. 
Um, and then we provide these models um, as a software, as a service to companies that are trying to develop battery products. So these kind of batteries are used in things like your electric scooters, your electric bicycles. Um, actually, a lot of production electric vehicles use these batteries. So unless you're building hundreds of thousands of electric cars, you don't get the economies of scale for your own custom chemistry. So a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of it's done on commercially available cells. Interesting. And um, is that your your model? Is that used to help the you know pr primarily at design stage, or would people actually also use that in terms of like you know their BMS and and sort of control in the life of a battery pack? Yes, we, we very uniquely, and this is why the two universities were brought together, we very uniquely offer a range of models um, for a range of different problems. So we have like very detailed thermal models, electrical models, electrochemical models, and degradation models. Um, and you need each of these models through the different like journey or life cycle of kind of a battery product. So a cell manufacturer um, would need electrochemical models to help them design and optimize the chemistry in the cell and how that's packaged. Um, into the form factor of a cell and then say an automotive design team will first need to select which batteries of it you know is the best for their application in the market so they probably need an um, electrical model and something like simulink so they can very quickly prototype lots of different designs then that kind of moves over to the actual integration team so that team will probably need electrical thermal maybe even electrochemical models to actually design their thermal management system and the battery pack um, and then you go over to the control team who then have to control how you charge and discharge this battery and monitor its state of health. So then you're over to electrochemical models, electrical models. So there's no one model for one area, um, but we very uniquely have expertise in all the different areas, the, the key areas of battery modeling. Um, and it's what we're doing right now and still developing is products and services that you know help each of these key, um, key areas of battery development. So if you're like selecting a cell for your application, we're developing a product um, that will help you narrow down, you know, the 500 to 1,000 cells on the market and work out, well, what's the right one for your application? Ah, okay. So almost like the reverse. So not you, you can help someone look at a specific cell and kind of model that and understand how it's going to work. But then the kind of reverse of that, you can look at an application and help to sort of down select the appropriate cell for the application is that have i understood that correctly yeah exactly so we basically have an algorithm that um basically hunts through all the different commercially available cells and this is still something we're developing um and then it helps you shortlist so it doesn't say oh this is the best one for you because in reality the the application is so nuanced it's very very complex but it says here's where you should start looking like Samsung have this very interesting cell, LG have this interesting cell. Um, you know, maybe these are the two you should be looking at. And the platform we're developing um, is called The Vault, and we're actually having the public launch of it uh, mid-March. Is actually going to have all this data um, on it and have this algorithm, so you can very quickly go onto this platform, view this, view all the cells in the database, run this algorithm, see what's the best cells for your application. But it's not just the technical performance of the cells. It's also like the techno-economics, like supply chain sustainability as well. Like what materials are in that cell, how much cobalt, how much manganese. Um, and yeah, where's that cell came from? Like how much carbon is embodied? So we're working with partners because we collect a lot of the raw data through our teardown procedures as to like what's stored inside the cell. And through third parties, we're going to have plugins which help analyze the supply chain and the, the ESG. Um, 
of themselves. So you wouldn't be just relying on, because I know some of the cell manufacturers produce these kind of uh, certificates of of provenance that, you know, in terms of where the raw materials came from and that it's, it's um, you know, no child labor was used, et cetera. But, so you're not just relying on that. You're actually basing it on teardown analysis and, and actually looking in, deep inside. Yeah, exactly. We're setting ourselves up as like the independent kind of test facility for battery selection. So cell manufacturers publish some data. They have data sheets that supply um, kind of like voltage traces um, over different current ranges. But the problem is you don't know what conditions that cell was cycled under. You don't know what battery cycler that was on. Every battery cycler has a slightly different calibration. So we want to standardize, harmonize. Really, we just want to enable, we want to enable people to, to build battery products. That's kind of our, our mission and accelerate kind of our um, transition to electrification. Interesting. And and of your um the companies that you're working with, is it mainly uh battery cell users or is it cell developers? Like which uh, you know, where where do you sort of fall in the supply chain? Yeah, we've been super fortunate last summer, um, kind of when we were going around speaking to lots of companies, seeing if there was demand for this kind of service. We realized that yeah, demand was going to outstrip supply. So we we were very fortunate to be in a position that we could be very targeted about who we work with. So we chose, um, very specifically, we chose an, a material developer, like an electrode manufacturer. We chose a cell manufacturer, um, an automotive OEM, and a motorsports company. Um, and the goal was, you know, in them projects, we would learn how to map our technology to their needs and develop these products and services. Because every, as I'm sure you can imagine, every like area of that industry has different needs. You will have like yeah, different criteria, um, to assess performance so so that's been really good over the last yeah six to nine months is taking that learning which has enabled our future product development which will help us expand in the future interesting right across the supply chain really sort of active materials cells you know up to uh, end users that's that's interesting that what you do is kind of brings value right up the supply chain it's um, fantastic well well done <laughs> well yeah. Thanks. To be honest, it's just very fortunate I came along at the right time. There was all this technology at Imperial and the University of Birmingham, and I stumbled across that invention. So, um, yeah, I think it's just the right place at the right time. Everybody says you have to get lucky in business, but I did not really believe how lucky I would get in this opportunity. Well, I think you've been very humble. You create your luck as well in terms of uh, having your ears and eyes open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you know yourself from your experiences. It's yeah, yeah. It's a bit of look, bit of look. I, I just, just wanting to kind of circle back because it's a, it's a topic of real interest. I mean, in a, in a few different ways, like the, um, to, trying to kind of unpack what you do. But I think because, like, if, 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 if we started with what's going on in a cell, and you made a comment earlier about, you know, you can't have power, um, energy, something else, something else, something else. There's sort of like three or four different performance um, characteristics that you rattled off. If, if you were thinking about it at a cell level, what, you know, in a nutshell, <laughs> why is that? So what drives these differences um, in the different kinds of cells and the performance that you can get out of them? Yeah, definitely. So I think people always wonder this they're like how is there not one battery which just does everything meets all the requirements 
but the reality is it's like very nuanced in the design as to you know why certain cells are better for certain applications than others so for example there's a very clear trade-off between energy and energy density and power availability um to get more power you add more aluminium and copper into your current collectors which allow you to extract the heat and um, also move the energy out of the cell but obviously by adding in the aluminium and copper they're not the active materials that are contributing towards you know the energy storage so you're reducing your energy density and the similar trade-off can be made between cost and degradation um for, for example it's much more complex than this but to, to oversimplify it if you want to extend the batch like the the lifetime of your cell to Im improve how many cycles it's going to last you might add in you know more exotic materials such as cobalt um, cobalt is like very, very stable and it, it keeps the battery for a long lifetime, but it's also very, very expensive and has all the supply chain issues. So if you want to make cheap batteries, you can't really use cobalt, but then your cells aren't going to last as long. Um, and the same applies for other, you know, material variants, whereas the more expensive ones tend to last much longer. Um, so you kind of have this trade-off. So there's, there's more dimensions than, you know, the four I, I, I mentioned, but like, that's how complex it gets. And that's why these manufacturers have like a broad range of cells available, but to like, even to me, who kind of understands high level, you know, what's going on in the cell. If I was to design an electric scooter, even I would really struggle to, to understand what's the best cell for that application. Reality is at the moment, you have no choice, but to build lots of variants, buy lots of cells, do lots of real world tests, and then just see which was the best one. Whereas our goal and our aim is to to produce the most representative models to to help digitalize that. It is difficult, I guess, particularly with as well a lot of the supply chain restrictions, because um, a big variable can be like almost what can I get? <laughs> um, as much as who who wants to play nicely um, this week um, with the cell guys? It seems to go in cycles of them wanting to be in new projects and then not so there's there's a bit of, of activity there you, you um i'm going to pick you up on you, you mentioned about cobalt in particular and that just sort of sparked a question for me because that is a big that's a huge topic you know and you make an interesting point about um you know typically cobalt's been used to, uh, to stabilize um and to sort of extend the life um cycle so one of the things you know the the uh, nmc um, sort of cell chemistries um they, they were they were sort of revelation when they came about because of the step up in energy density actually and power and extending the cycle life um compared to what had been in the market for such a long time but now we hear people are aiming to try and eliminate cobalt um elon musk in particular has been quite vocal about getting rid of cobalt it can't be that simple surely um how will that be achieved is it by going to sort of more exotic you know high silicon how can we get rid of cobalt yeah i think cobalt's the one that everybody's aware of because of obviously um like the supply chain the kind of child labor used in some of the makes for good newspaper articles <laughs> it, it does but it's it's not the only problem child in in kind of battery materials so you have nickel now is the latest one yeah i, th I think it was like this time last year there was the crazy russian nickel where it went up by two thousand percent in a day and yeah the london metal exchange like halted trading 
which I guess you could argue is kind of fraudulently. So people are even trying to move away from nickel at the moment. Um, I'm no expert in material chemistries, um, electrochemistry as to, you know, what chemistry is going to dominate in the future, but there's definitely a huge shift back towards LFP. Yeah. And so that's lithium ion phosphate. And I would say back because it's been around for a long time, but it was always kind of written off as it wasn't very energy dense. It's like, like you say, these new exi- exciting chemistries came along like NMC. Um, but but now LFP in the background has really caught up, which has really been driven by CATL in China. Uh, so I was going to ask, is, is you know, because it LIFAPO4, you know, it was... <laughs> LFP is so much easier to say. Uh, it was like a proper staple back in the day, like the first battery pack I ever built. It was um, LFP prismatics from a certain supplier. <laughs> um, you were ahead of the trend. You were 20 years ahead. You didn't realize at the time. Well, <laughs> clearly not. Uh, I do remember them being quite troublesome. And um, cell to cell variation was pretty horrendous as well. Um, you know, so there's certain characteristics of the cells were quite hard to deal with. And is that just because they were not being made very well and someone's kind of got the recipe right? Or has there been some like s- s- fundamental, you know, improvement in LFP technology? What What's caused that? I honestly wish I knew. I have absolutely no idea what's... <laughs> um... But yeah, there's obviously been like huge investment in a LFP, improving a lot of this kind of variance and the mainly in the energy density as well. Um, but LFP still has its challenges, which have been addressed. Like there's the kind of voltage um, hysteresis, which is basically if you were to charge, I don't know if you remember, you probably struggled over this at the time when you charge and discharge the cell, you, you get a different open circuit voltage. Um, and why that matters is because your whole battery management system uses this as like its reference point. So you have this thing that's changing and, and it makes it very, very difficult to estimate state of charge. And it's literally, the problem is as big as, you know, I don't know if I have 20% like state of charge or if I'm at 40%. Like there's this huge, huge uncertainty. And it badly affects by temperature as well. If I recall, it seemed to get... Um if you started to push it towards the um, the corners of the operating temperature envelope, it got quite extreme. Um, and it's such a flat curve anyway, you know. Um, so you, what, if, if for people who aren't familiar with this, what we're rabbiting on about here is um, when you um, discharge a, a lithium-ion battery cell, you go from its uh, sort of full voltage to its empty voltage, and its empty voltage isn't zero, it's still a, a reference voltage. Um, you can't completely discharge a, a lithium cell without damaging it. And old-fashioned batteries have a nice uh, big difference between when they're full and when they're empty, and uh, a nice straight line in between the two points, roughly. So it's quite easy to tell if the cell's full or half or quarter or 10%. But lithium-ion cells have um, a much smaller... Um, delta between the full and the empty point for the cell or the, the minimum voltage you can take it down to and the line in between the two is not straight <laughs> it's a kind of an s <laughs> yeah um so you've got to this is partly i guess where a lot of your models and, and things come in useful because it's very very difficult to then in the life of the the 
the pack, you've got to do two things when, so you're looking at that cell voltage with the battery management electronics. And one of the things you're trying to do is tell, you know, it's a fuel gauge. So I want to know how much energy I've got in my battery pack. So that's, you know, that's fine. But the other thing you're trying to do, you know, the pack performance changes slightly over its life and it changes, like those points will change with temperatures. So you're trying to kind of, you're also trying to get a state of health as well. Um, reading so you you know it's very very important um this kind of uh, discharge charge and discharge curve and um the Gavin, gavin's point there was that the charge discharge curves are different they call it hysteresis um but it, it's like a literally trying to pin the tail on a moving donkey um trying to work out where that um where that cell is <laughs> and then and and compensating for temperature and compensating for degradation in the life of the cell. Um, it's quite an interesting challenge, but it, but it is cause I, you know, to be honest, I never thought that LFP cells would be suitable for, um, kind of high volume automotive. Yeah. I don't think anybody's seen it coming, did they? The last five years, they've really taken, taken the market by storm. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got, um, LFP is very common in China. Um, even Tesla using it in, in some cars in China. I think it, where it partly helps some of the the disadvantages with LFP in terms of packaging the battery packs, so the lack of uh, volumetric energy density. So these things are uh, bigger. Um, but if you've got a, a vehicle that was designed to be electric from the beginning, you know, tend to have plenty of space to fit the battery. So the sort of vehicle design has evolved to the point where some of the limitations aren't as important. But all of the other limitations still exist. <laughs> so... Uh, hats off to the people who are making these things work. I I do wonder if um, you know cattle have just sort of got the um, the consistency better, that kind of um, material blend, active material um, sort of consistency. The manufacturing methodologies, uh, you know, is if you've ever been to a battery manufacturing plant, it is quite amazing. Actually, um, we take it for granted. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um well, I don't know. it's quite hard to explain you, you, you're suited and booted and it's kind of a controlled atmosphere and a sort of very very high standard of cleanliness and um when i say suited and booted uh, i don't mean kind of in your business suits it's sort of clean room equipment um in your hazmat suit it's yeah, more like that yeah hazmat <laughs> suit exactly so very um very kind of uh, controlled manufacturing environment, but then they're processing, you know, millions of cells. So there's materials and uh, stuff whizzing all over the place. Um, and then these huge kind of crypt-like structures where they they bring the cells to life like Frankenstein. Yeah, lots of things spinning around. I'm sure everybody's seen the kind of Tesla promo videos of the 4680 production line where you have cells just, and you, the craziest thing is you watch that video and then you learn afterwards that that was it in slow motion. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. A bit like millions and millions of units of, of production. Um, and the, the sort of reel to reel processes, so big reels of stuff, uh, whizzing around, which is, um, it's fascinating to watch. LFP is, uh, is, is sort of seen a surge. Um, Cobalt reduction, we we touched on. Uh, you you mentioned nickel because uh, of some of the issues there. Nickel reduction. What what else? You know, obviously you're not giving away any secrets uh, of your customers, but what else do you see 
in general in the market in terms of a trend um, with what people are doing with battery cells and battery packs and cell development and pack development and things like that? What's your perspective on where the market's going? Yeah, well, from a modeling perspective, there's definitely a shift towards more physics-based electrochemical models. Um, but traditionally, is what's used as an equivalent circuit model. And to explain an equivalent circuit model very, very briefly is um, it's kind of like a black box solution. So you just treat your battery as this black box where you charge and discharge it and you get some voltage response. And then you take some very, very primitive circuit elements, such as a voltage reference, a resistor, and then a couple of capacitor resistance pairs to kind of get the time dependence. And then you just fit mathematically fit these circuit elements to the voltage response. And that's that's what's running in your mobile phone right now, in your smartwatch, your laptop. That's that model is used backwards to work out the state of charge, um, like how much energy is available for you to use. And these models have been used, yeah, for for the last 10, 20 years to design control systems. Um, but now there's definitely more of a focus on going down one level deeper, trying to get more understanding. It's like not a full black box solution. We've definitely seen a huge demand to understand what's going on inside the cell um, because there's a lot of very complex things happen that these kind of black box models don't explain. Um, so like my supervisor, Greg, has been pioneering these kind of like equivalent circuit, these distributed models to try and capture the non-uniform current flow within a single cell non-uniform heat generation, state of charge within a single cell. Because um, that's another thing. Within a battery, the, the whole battery isn't a uniform state of charge. Um, you know, different areas of the battery are slightly different state of charge and they have different current flow. Um, and then you map that over a whole system like an electric vehicle and yeah, the problem just gets so complicated. You add in bus bar resistances between the cells. So is what we've directly seen is that people have built battery systems, built battery cells, um, and they haven't performed as they expected. And the question now is why? And that's where we're really kind of helping them open the door and see, you know, look inside the battery to see what's going on. And there's like a whole spectrum of models. Everybody always assumes that there's like this kind of gold standard pinnacle equivalent or electrochemical model um, that can explain everything. Um, most people don't realize that even that, the kind of Doyle for a Newman model, um, is built on so many assumptions, but but often that's kind of overkill for what somebody needs. So we're helping them join the dots by learning from them. You know what insights do you want to to glean, um, so that we can advise you on what's the like the best, most representative, most accurate model for your specific application. Ultimately, how that manifests itself today is people like we've sort of seen you know, several manufacturers launch electric vehicles and have basically quite big batteries, but with with much lower usable capacity than others. So they're putting like big operating headroom on the battery. A lot of the reason for doing that is effectively kind of building in a buffer um, to make sure that they don't get caught out in the life of the vehicle with, you know, unexpected degradation or performance change or some sort of issue. So they've kind of, um, they're not kind of prepared to take the risk of running on the, that knife edge because it's like, we're not really confident in what's happening. So building on your work and the things you do would allow the manufacturer to more finely optimize the pack 
um, you know, and the cell usage and basically get much closer between the predicted performance and the actual performance and then take out some of that headroom and, and sort of excess capacity and get much closer. So I, you know, smaller, lighter battery pack to go further ultimately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's in the upfront design so they can optimize the system to reduce the, the mass, the cost, the size of the battery pack, um, remove or reduce like this extra headroom that you're talking about. But then also now a lot of electric vehicles come as standard with over-the-air updates, which is really pioneered by Tesla. But the key thing with that is it allows you to update the control algorithms that control the battery through the lifetime. Um, because whenever you're the life cycle for the development of a car is, you know, five to seven years for large auto manufacturers. And that's the whole way from concept down to, you know, the first cars run off the production line, but batteries, you know, are expected to last eight to 12 years. So even on, on day one of you coming up with a concept for a car, if you selected your battery of choice, by the time that car is on the production line, you only have four years of degradation data. So you actually haven't, you know, you don't know how long that car is going to last. Um, so is what happens is, yeah, the, the automotive companies are running these degradation experiments a few years, two or three years ahead of the cars being out in the market. And then they, they take them insights and them updates, and then they can update the battery management system actually on the vehicle in real time um, to account for it. Yeah, so before Tesla, it's pretty much unheard of for people to use over-the-air updates or data gathering from the, the customer's vehicle in the field. And a lot of people in automotive would have looked down their noses a bit at that in terms of, you know, the customer's not a test pilot. But but actually, it's really, it's impossible to re recreate such extensive um, data in, in such a short time. In the past with with more conventional vehicles, OEMs always looked at warranty data and, and field failures and things like that. But, uh, but this is a new kind of era where it, you know, obviously the, the problem with the field failures is it only tells you about something once it's critically failed rather than giving you live analysis and predictions and things like that. So, so gathering data from vehicles in operation from your customers is, is really like, I think that's going to be a big trend into the, into the future. Do you think that manufacturers will start to use that to improve the design of battery packs, battery cells, or do you not think it will get that kind of joined up? Yeah, absolutely. So these um, automotive companies are already using this. There's lots of third parties that help them take this raw data from their vehicles and process it online and produce some sort of meaningful analysis and results. Um, there's definitely going to be a trend of these automotive companies using this to work out what they can improve in the future. And we think we have a key part to play in all of that. So we would supply models to these third parties or to the automotive companies themselves um, that allows them to go from this raw data, which is like their canvas signals of voltage and temperature traces and kind of work that backwards into, well, what was actually going on in the battery at that moment? Um, and can we use this insight of knowing what was going on in the battery in that moment, spread over these huge data sets to, to build some insights into oh, under these conditions, we're likely to see very high degradation or under these conditions, the batteries are on an optimal performance. And these are the kind of insights that for future products, but also for over-the-air updates, you can you know, recalibrate your um, your control mechanisms. And, and it can be very, very minor updates as in like, you know, slightly change the charge protocol or when a consumer requests power, slightly change how much is available or the ramp rate. 
um, of the cells. Um, but, but that can be enough to really add significant amounts of time onto to the battery lifetime, whether that be um, a year or a few years um, to meet the warranty obligations. A lot. That's a lot of where it gets very complicated in automotive compared to other applications like consumer electronics where it has to last 12 months and then um, you're done. But automotive is very harsh operating conditions everywhere in the world with long warranties, five years, not untypical, typically longer even sometimes. So, yeah, it's very, very difficult um, engineering vehicles and, and uh, products that go into vehicles. So all that, all of that data is um, is going to be very, very helpful for people in into the future. And I mean, you've, you've kind of answered this along the way, but just to sort of wrap, uh, wrap things up a bit, what, what is it that about energy is going to be doing? Like, what are your plans for the business and what, what are you planning to do in the, in the near future? Yeah, definitely. So we've only been trading as a company now for 10 months, which is actually kind of scary. Um, I think in this time last year, we were still trying to spin out the universities, um, getting our license agreements sorted. Um, and yeah, we got our first, first contracts in January, February, um, and our first investment in April. Um, and that allowed us to commit to our first full-time employees. And we went from zero in April to now 12 full-time. Um, so, so now we're actually in the process of raising some more money, which will allow us to build our own lab facility in London, as well as commit to hiring a few more people. Um, and then it's going to be a real focus on our product um, and our technology and packaging that up into, into something that's usable um, for the battery industry. Um, and like I said earlier, we're launching what we're calling the Vault, which is our web platform. And on that platform, there'll be loads of yeah, battery um, information, like all the cells, kind of a lot of the information scraped from their data sheets. But then on specific cells, most interesting cells, we're actually doing a lot of testing and we're going to have models within them. So hopefully in the future, yeah, about energies, well, our, our brand, our profile is going to be heavily raised by this. And I think your, your listeners will probably be glad to hear we want to open up a freemium kind of model okay i was going to ask how it was going to you know the vault um yeah w whether that was going to be a subscription thing or how, how you're going to go about doing that so free freemium <laughs> freemium i think is what they call it in the business world yes but but you'll be glad to hear it it would feel cruel to tell you about all this cool stuff we're developing but then you'd never be able to see it so <laughs> well not, i mean it depends doesn't it not necessarily uh, you've got to make a living uh, out of out of these things. So people presumably will be able to get some of this f for free, um, but then pay an additional amount to get um, more detail and uh, all the sort of um, in-depth stuff behind that. Yeah, exactly. So it'll be a business-to-business -business web platform. Um, but uh, we know that people have so much interest in batteries, so many students out there. So we will kind of want to open it up to to get their input and also to educate them. I think there's a lot to be learned on batteries. Uh, there's, I'm sure you know, a massive skill shortage. Um, companies are scrambling to to hire top graduates. I can't remember, somebody was telling me a few weeks ago that like the average battery engineer just lasts like 12 months at a company before they move on. It's complicated. We've just said, you know, multi-physics, electrochemistry, you know, you've got a lot of things going on. So there weren't really even... In fact, I don't think there are courses in, there isn't like a battery cell 
and not it, that I'm aware of. Yeah, no. no. So you'd have to be, it, like even the the routes into it is is difficult. So it's it's a demand area. I mean, there's a lot of demand areas at the minute. Don't get me wrong. So if you do electronics engineering or electrical, you know, electrical machine design, power electronics, embedded software. I mean, a lot of these for the same reasons or similar reasons into new electronics, robotics, automotive, aerospace products. Um, you know, it's the way of, of the future. So, uh, yeah, but batteries is, yeah. What do you do? What do you study to be a battery engineer? What was your first degree in? <laughs> so my, mine was in mechanical engineering, but I was so surprised when I joined the research group here at Imperial because yes, there was mechanical engineers in the mechanical engineering department, but there was also physicists, there was chemists, there was mathematicians, there were software developers. And the reality is to be to be a battery researcher or a battery engineer, you need to be, yeah, you need to be very multi-physics. You need to be able to, you know, solve complex math, but also understand chemistry and electrochemistry um, and kind of physics, but then also the engineering principles of how you build it into a system. So it's a very, very challenging problem. And I went to a a conference a couple of years ago and there was somebody from Dassault Systems um, presenting. So Dassault Systems are the owners of products like SolidWorks and um, uh, yeah, they own Katia as well. Um, so a huge, huge modeling company. And the guy presenting was saying that there's, I think it was their CTO gave a, a speech a year before saying that how in his 40 year career in modeling, batteries were by far the most difficult problem he's ever came up against. There's so much still to learn, so much still to develop. And I guess that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is every day still is a learning day. And <laughs> I wish I understood batteries myself, but the reality is they're so complex that, you know, I have a grasped high level. I kind of know what I don't know about them. There's so much still to learn. That's a good place to be. Uh, I think there's unfortunately still come across people. Oh, it's a battery pack, you know, throw it together. And I, I've almost, I feel like the uh, the doomsayer because I quite often find myself saying, you know, if battery pack goes wrong, bad things happen. <laughs> like you've got to engineer this properly. But the number of people who just don't, I mean, there's one of the big changes I'm quite excited about in the battery industry is new legislation that's potentially coming in. Unfortunately, as a result of a lot of issues with cheap batteries in e-scooters and uh, bikes and stuff like that and um you know across europe and there's been issues in the us and in asia as well so i think governments have become aware that there's a bit of a problem with battery packs that aren't designed properly um you know and obviously the cell is the the underpinning part of that but then getting everything else right around it to protect it and make sure it does what you thought it was going to do is really hard <laughs> as people might appreciate from our conversation just now. So, uh, that's brilliant. I mean, I am in awe of what you've done. Uh, I mean, in 10 months, four or five customers, a team of, uh, you know, a dozen people or more. I mean, well done you. It's fantastic. Uh, what you guys have done. So like I said, uh, a lot of luck, Ryan, it's quite, I, I find it hard to believe myself, honestly, you wake up. <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> back on the building site in uh, australia that's probably uh, taught you some good life lessons that one and uh, probably a few new swear words that you didn't know before i would imagine as well uh oh, fantastic so it's been uh, it's been great to uh, talk to you and uh, and you know 
record this episode. I hope um, people got something out of that and uh, and you know understand what you guys are doing and some of the complexities around battery cell development a bit bit more. So thank you very much for agreeing to come on. No, honestly, thank you very much, Ryan. And if anybody's interested, please just follow us on LinkedIn. My co-founder Kieran's very good at keeping everybody up to date. Uh, with what we're developing and hopefully over the next few months we've got lots of exciting news to announce um, and some ed- educational materials as well for anybody that's interested in learning more about batteries ah very good so so what we'll do for people uh, if, if you don't normally listen to the podcasts i will put links in the show notes so if you um expand the notes you'll find uh, links back to about energy's web page and uh gavin's linkedin we might even put uh um kieran's linkedin and the company one in there as well and some of the other things we've talked about uh and uh, probably a link back to the original um the podcast a while ago with greg offer and some other things but yeah don't forget there is a huge back catalog of episodes um so uh people can uh check those out as well um that would be great so uh thank you thanks for for taking the time out to join us today and with that we'll we'll bring this episode to a close thank you very much Ryan. cheers